Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. So this morning, I'm glad to see all of you here. We are uh, going to be looking at the second week of our series that we've been calling True North, which is a uh, very short but very uh, essential and important series that we're moving through together. And the idea behind True North is just as True North is a navigational term that is a reference point, we are exploring this from the standpoint of as we're moving into a new season in our church and we're looking forward to what God is going to do going forward, we want to reset ourselves on what is the True North, what is the reference point for who the church is supposed to be and who we are supposed to be here at North Bible Church. And so if you know the term true north, you may know that it is a navigational term that helps set in reference or helps set every other direction around it. So if you've ever wondered how a compass works, a compass essentially works by first identifying what true north is, and then from true north it can identify where west is, where east is, and where south is. As I mentioned last week, true north is also a fixed place on our planet that we also know as the North Pole which is where all other lines of longitude on the earth meet, and it's where they come from, and so it determines direction that way as well. As we're moving forward as a church, true north is going to be then the thing that we are focused on as we move forward into where we believe God is leading us, and we want to set that reference point where it's supposed to be so that every other direction, so to speak, everything that we do is continually focused on who we're supposed to be as the church. And so in establishing those those things, we're looking at three things in particular. Last week, we talked about true king. First and foremost, our priority is that everything that we do is focused on glorifying Jesus and who he is. It's defined by Jesus and his kingdom. And then as we live that out, uh, part of that is what we're going to talk about this morning is that the outflow of Jesus' kingdom is his kingdom calling, his mission. What does it look like for the kingdom to take root in us and around us? And then finally, the third week is when we'll finally get to talking about, which is next week, the true people, which is the church. And we're doing these deliberately in order, in order of kind of priority, if you will, but really kind of how things flow. Because we have to establish, first of all, who Jesus is, and then we establish Jesus' mission, and then we talk about what it means to be the church. Because any discussion about the church that doesn't involve Jesus and his mission is an incomplete discussion about what the church is supposed to be. So that's why we're moving through it in this, in this order, and today we're going to be talking about true calling. But to give you a brief overview of what we looked at last week, in case you weren't here or you're here and you just need a review, uh, I, I talked about, of course, Jesus is true king, but I asked you the question as we began, what is the Bible? Took that as really a foundational question because what we understand the Bible to be and what we understand the Bible to be doing in our lives is hugely important in terms of how we understand what it means to follow Jesus and what the true king is all about. We talked about how, you know, you can interpret, and depending on who you ask what the Bible is, there's a hundred different ways maybe to answer that question. But ultimately, the Bible is about God revealing himself personally to us and revealing himself through a story or what we call the meta-narrative, the one big true story about everything we see, about everything that has happened, about everything that will happen, which explains who we are, why we're here, who put us here. But then ultimately... What the story is pointing to is the true king and his kingdom. At the point of it all, the point of the story is Jesus. The Old Testament looks forward to Jesus. The New Testament looks both back to Jesus' first coming and then forward to Jesus' second coming in the consummation of his kingdom. Okay? So that's what we talked about last week. If you didn't get a chance to be here, you can listen to it online or podcast or whatever. But the question for today is this. How does that kingdom story, that kingdom reality, 
take root in our world today? What difference does that story make as far as the way that it moves us forward? And it's a question really of purpose. In other words, as a church, if this story is true, what does it mean to live our lives today in light of the fact that there is a true king and that his kingdom is advancing and he's moving it forward? That's a question of mission. And I'm going to say this a few times this morning, and I think it's important for us to make sure that as we're talking about mission, we have this understanding in place. That no matter what's happening, Jesus is always moving forward on mission. We looked at Colossians chapter 1 last week where Paul said everything is moving through him. The reality is that Jesus is unfolding his redemptive plan from the beginning to the end, and his mission is continuing. And he is moving whether we are moving or not. Whether the church is joining Jesus or not, Jesus is on mission everywhere and all around us. That's important for us to understand as we move forward today. We're going to be talking about the Great Commission as we know it from Matthew chapter 28 and Acts chapter 1. But in reality, you'll hear, me, you'll hear me refer to it a couple of times, at least this morning, as the great invitation. In other words, it's an invitation that Jesus gives us to be a part of what he is already doing as he moves forward on his mission in the world. And I, I want to clarify that because I think that sometimes when we talk about mission, especially when we talk about it in the church, we have different ideas of what that looks like. And for some of us, mission just kind of, mission kind of calls up these uncomfortable uh, feelings about, you know, being awkward in our evangelism, and then at the same time, we feel a little bit guilty because we're supposed to be evangelizing, but we don't do it as much, and at the same time, it calls to mind kind of awkward spiritual conversations that we've had with people, we've tried to share the gospel, and it didn't work out very well, and certainly evangelism is a part of mission, but there's a bigger picture to what we're talking about here, and I get and I really understand those awkward pieces. When I was in, when I was in uh, seminary, I was serving as an intern at a local church there in Fort Worth, Texas, where I was going to school. And an intern at a church, I don't know if you've ever been an intern at a church or known an intern at a church, but an intern at a church is kind of like an intern anywhere else, in the sense that they just give the interns all the stuff that nobody else wants to do, right? And so they gave me the responsibility, at least as, as part of my responsibility, of helping to lead our outreach and evangelism ministry, right? It's kind of sad that that's the thing that nobody else wanted to do, so they give it to the intern to do it, right? But our, our, our program, or our approach basically existed like this. It was 15 years ago in Fort Worth, Texas, and what we would do is we did follow-up, what we called follow-up visitation and outreach. And so on Wednesday nights, we would take all the people who visited from Sunday morning, and it was a pretty good-sized church, so we had a lot of people that we would visit every week, but we would take their card and we would go to their house on Wednesday afternoon or Wednesday evening. And our goal was really to kind of meet them, to figure out whether or not they're a Christian, and if they weren't, to just share the gospel with them right there on their doorstep. It typically started out with, well, we're here to visit you and thank you for visiting our church and all those kinds of things. And as part of that conversation, we were prepared with a scripted or canned presentation of the gospel. And at the time, we were trained with what was known as evangelism explosion. You may be familiar with that. Um, I think it still exists today, but 15 years ago, uh, what you did with Evangelism Explosion was you asked this diagnostic question on the very, at the very front of it. And the diagnostic question, you may remember it, is this. If you were to die today, do you know for certain that you would go to heaven to be with Jesus? Or you would be with Jesus in heaven, something like that, right? Which is, you know, a, a good question maybe to ask. It's not a bad question, surely. But it's an extremely awkward and difficult question to ask to somebody while you're on your, their doorstep and you're not even on a first-name basis with them, right? I mean, you're asking them about their death as you're getting to know them and saying, thank you for visiting our church. It was terribly, terribly awkward. 
And it's kind of given me, you know, it gives me kind of those fears about evangelism. When I hear fear about evangelism, I think, I think about that. Like when I think about fears of evangelism and awkward conversations, because that has happened quite a few times in my life. And as I look back on this, it's no wonder why I got so many doors slammed in my face and people even yelling at me to get off their property. I mean, even 15 years ago in the middle of the Bible Belt, that was a little bit on the nose for people, right? And so what I want to tell you this morning is that we're going to frame mission as a bigger picture than that. And we're not going to get a chance to talk about all the nuances of mission, but, in the, but, but what I want us to see this morning is that what mission looks like in the church is joining Jesus where he is already at work and where he is already moving in the world around us. Christopher Wright says it this way. He defines mission by saying, look, fundamentally, our mission, that's the church, if it is biblically informed and validated, means our committed participation as God's people at God's invitation and command, in God's own mission, within the history of God's word, for the redemption of God's creation. That's a lot of words, so let me boil it down to just this. It's God's people committed to God's mission to redeem God's creation. Okay? So that's a, those are big terms. And sometimes, yes, mission's not always going to be easy, and sometimes it does involve difficult spiritual conversations. But at the same time, it's, a, it's big. It's a big calling that we've been called to. So in light of this, let's bring it down to really the street level, so to speak. What would this look like, and what does it look like to move with Jesus on mission in our everyday lives? Um, and to do that, I'll, I'll kind of throw out a real-life situation for you. Uh, many of you know that two years previous to coming to North, we were in Portland, Oregon, my family and I, and I was serving as a lead pastor at a church out, out there in southwest Portland. And if you know anything about Portland, if you know anything about the church climate in Portland, Portland has long been identified as one of the most unchurched cities in America, and in my experience, it has well lived up to that reputation. Um, it's a very difficult place to do ministry. It's a very difficult place just to be a Christian. And a lot of that has to do with, really, what has moved through on the front end of Portland and has been kind of going through for at least a couple generations, which is just full-fledged what we know as secularism or secular belief, post-Christian belief. And it's something that even in a city like Phoenix, we engage with time to time. But what makes it different in Portland is that Portland is fully immersed in this belief, uh, in this kind of worldview that we can classify as secularism. And secularism essentially says that there is, uh, it, well, it tries to dismantle any kind of you know, organization, especially organized religion, is an enemy of secularism. Secularism is built upon doubt. And it's built upon saying that basically there is nothing that exists above you and beyond you, and so write your own story and do your own thing. And the greatest value in secularism is just get out of life whatever feels good and whatever feels like it most satisfies you, whatever that thing may be. So when we talk about a meta-narrative last week, the one true story about everything, secularism hates that kind of a claim, especially when it comes from the Bible. Because in the view of secularism, there is no big author, and you are the author of your own story. You write it however you want it to, however you want it to be. And so Portland, most people in Portland, have been immersed in that for at least a couple of generations. And the difference between really what's going on there versus what we experience even, you know, various times is that from time to time, secularism might pop up in our lives, but it's considered to be kind of one of many ways you might believe. In Portland, it is the only way to believe. And so when you're in a church environment like that, the church is at best irrelevant and in many cases is seen as the enemy, as antagonistic. 
So the question then becomes, what do you do in the midst of that? How do you participate on mission? How do you even live out faith in Christ in that kind of environment? Well, I think it's the same answer, really, if you're living in Portland or if you're living in Phoenix or if you're living in New York or if you're living in L.A. or Hong Kong or wherever it may be. The reality is that Jesus is always on mission. The reason there's hope for the city of Portland is the same reason there's a hope for the city of Phoenix. Is that Jesus is not scared by secularism and he hasn't given up on the city of Portland just like he hasn't given up on Phoenix. And so what I want us to see this morning is Jesus' invitation, the Great Commission, to be on mission with him. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 28 and Acts chapter 1 this morning as kind of complementary pieces of this same calling. And as we turn to Matthew chapter 28, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to be starting in chapter, or excuse me, in chapter 28, verse 16, and we're going to finish out that chapter through verse 20. But before we read there, I want to give you a bit of a background on what's going on here. If you're not familiar with where we're at in the story, this is the end of Matthew's gospel. In fact, it's the very last five verses of the gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew is the longest of the four gospels. It has 28 chapters in it. And as we get to the end of this, what's happening is that Jesus has asked the disciples post-resurrection, so this is after Jesus' earthly ministry, after he's died on the cross and been resurrected. Now he's appeared to the disciples and he'd asked them to meet him in this area that's known as the kind of hillside of Galilee. And we're going to see why that's significant here in a minute, but this is what Matthew records for us as Jesus gives what is known as the Great Commission to his disciples. Verse 16, it says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. So, one of the interesting things about this, as I mentioned, these are the last five verses of the Gospel of Matthew. And one of the interesting things as you read this is you notice that this is just the end of the Gospel. He's been writing for 28 chapters, and then, boom, it just kind of abruptly ends. There's a bit of a cliffhanger ending here. I think it's part of the design as Matthew's writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit because what happens is that as you read this, the last thing that you're left with in the gospel is Jesus' words and his commands to you as the reader. That as much as this is a commission and an invitation to the disciples on that hillside 2,000 years ago, this, is, this becomes an invitation to the one who is reading it by the end of the scene. The disciples kind of fade off into the background. We're not told what they do or how they respond necessarily right here by Matthew. But Matthew leaves this right here, kind of on our plate, so to speak, to deal with. Here is the commission that has been given to the disciples 2,000 years ago. And oh, by the way, that continues in the church today 2,000 years later. For anyone who would dare to follow Jesus, this is his invitation to mission. Now, as we dive into this a little bit deeper, I think one thing that's interesting to see is how Jesus is there with the disciples and really what's going on in the background there. And what may seem like kind of just some introductory phrases, Matthew tells us that Jesus has asked the disciples to meet him at a mountainside or really the hillside area of Galilee. This would have been hugely significant and meaningful to the disciples because this was the very same place where Jesus began his earthly ministry at the beginning of Matthew. In other words, three years or so previous to this. 
the exact same place. It's the place where Jesus calls the disciples and says, come follow me at first, and they return to that very same place. But there would have been a stark contrast between that time and then what happens here at the end of the gospel. Because where the disciples first saw Jesus as maybe a rabbi or a teacher who speaks wise things about God, who's calling us to follow him, at first, by this point, they see him and they know him as the vindicated, risen Son of God. And notice that when Jesus gives them this commission, he doesn't say to them, guys, here's what I want you to do, and you've seen me in ministry, and, you've kind of, and you're smart guys, so you'll kind of figure it out in the end. He says, no, this is my mission. All authority has been given to me. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, and I am with you until the end of the age. Notice how he bookends that commission. He points it back on him and says, this is my mission. And you know, as the resurrected king, all authority has been given to me. We're going to see in Acts 1 the ascension event, which is the, the personification, the picture, the event that vindicates Jesus as the one who has authority now at the right hand of the Father. But Jesus is saying, all authority has been given to me, and I am with you to the end of the age, which is hugely significant for the disciples because these 11 young men are gathered on a hillside, and Jesus is saying to them, essentially, you're going to make disciples of the entire world. Right? until the end of the age. I mean, how big of a calling or a command is that? There's a reason why we call this the Great Commission because this is as big as it gets. And everything that Jesus says here is about lives and eternities that hang in the balance. There's no greater stakes than this, and he says you're going to do this to the ends of the earth, and every nation make disciples. It's no wonder why the disciples are a little timid. They're maybe a little bit overwhelmed. I mean, these are 11 Young men, probably in their 20s somewhere, looking at Jesus and saying, okay, you're going to leave us and you want us to do what now? But Jesus says, look, this doesn't depend on you. It's about me. All authority has been given to me and I am with you. Join me in this mission. Earlier we, talked, earlier we went through uh, communion together and Wes talked about Jesus being friend. I think one of the amazing things about when we come to communion is it's, a, it's amazing to think about the fact that the God of the universe, the King of the universe, wants to sit and have fellowship with us at the communion table. That's what that represents, right? I think at the same time, when we think through this mission, it's amazing that the King of the universe, who has this grand mission for the world, invites us to be a part of it. That's what's going on with the disciples. And then as we get to Acts chapter 1, we see a very complimentary type of situation here. In Acts chapter 1, Luke writes this in verse 6. He said, so when they had come together, they asked him, and these are the disciples, the eleven, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took, them up out of their, uh, took him up out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Luke's account adds a little bit of depth, a little bit of context to this. But what's going on here is that we see Jesus, of course, in the ascension. He ascends at the end, showing, demonstrating all power and authority has been given to him. 
But also when he says, I will be with you, you see him say the, the way that he will be with them is through the Holy Spirit. That God the Spirit will be with them. The Holy Spirit will come upon them, and then there'll be witnesses who speak about what they have seen Jesus do and what the kingdom is all about. But then finally, as we get to the end, one of the things that we see is the disciples' doubt and their bewilderment kind of come forward in the way that they react to all of this, right? Jesus gives them this command, and then he ascends into heaven, which is a pretty remarkable sight. So I'm going to give them a little bit of grace here. But one of the things that's remarkable about the disciples, whether it's here or throughout the Gospels, is how relatable they are to people like us, at least to me. I read through the Gospels, and I see the disciples always responding in ways that are kind of like, misunderstanding Jesus at best, in many ways doubting Jesus. In some cases, they just outright betray Jesus. Uh, one of my favorites is when they fall asleep while they're supposed to be praying, because <laughs> that happens to me all the time. That's very relatable for me. And if you pray enough, that has happened to you at least a few times in your life. You'll start praying, you just fall asleep, and you wake up the next morning, and you're like, well, what happened? Especially after a long day, right? So they're relatable. One of the ways that they're relatable is actually what happens here in Acts. As Jesus ascends into heaven, they stand there just looking at the sky. Metaphorically speaking, this is kind of very relatable for us as the church when it comes to mission. And you see what happens is that the two men in white robes, who are probably angels, come to the disciples and they're like, why are you guys staring up into the sky? Jesus just told you what you're supposed to be doing. Why are you just standing here looking up at the sky? I think in a lot of ways, metaphorically speaking, although we don't literally just sit here and stare at the sky, often when we forget mission, we are just like the disciples, just standing there looking at the sky. When we know what Jesus has told us, we're supposed to be about. If you've been in church for any amount of time, this is probably not the first time you've heard the Great Commission. But we need to be reminded, just like the disciples were reminded there, Jesus has already told you what you should be doing. Why are you standing there just staring at the sky? This is an invitation to be involved in mission. So what then does this, does this look like? Well, Christopher Wright says, look, it is so central to the church that it's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. In other words... Jesus didn't say to the disciples, hey, I'm forming a church, and I'm going to be gone, and I'm coming back at some point, and you guys need something to keep you occupied and keep you busy, and so I'm going to give you this mission to see if you can accomplish it. And I'll be back to check on you from time to time, and I'll be back to, to see how you're doing, but at the same time, this is what you're, this is, here's something, here's some essential spiritual busy work for you to do while I'm gone. No, the, the order is different, right? Jesus has a mission, and he says, this is my mission, and now I'm going to create my church so that my church can accomplish my mission. When you look at it that way, when the church misses the mission of Jesus, we've missed a core component of who we're supposed to be. In fact, you might say the core component of who we're supposed to be. So, this is the big picture of the great invitation. Now, what does it look like, again, in our lives? we're going to do this, what does it actually look like? Well, to return to that example about Portland earlier, you know, I said all these things about how Portland is unique and all these other things, but in reality, Portland, although Portland is unique, it is just like any other city because it's filled with people just like any other city. People created in the image of God, and because they've been created in the image of God, they are people who naturally seek for meaning and purpose in their lives. 
And one of the things about secularism that is starting to be exposed in places like Portland that are very secular is that there are cracks in this foundation. They're starting to realize that secularism provides nothing of meaning and purpose beyond myself. And so some people have reacted by, you know, taking up something else that they believe is bigger than their own lives, which is either activism or politics, and you see that in Portland everywhere. You may have seen on the news that in the down, in downtown city of Portland, there are far-right groups and far-left groups that get together, political groups that just literally fight each other in the middle of the city of Portland. And that's secularism coming back to roost because these people have so identified with their political positions that it's become part of their identity and they can't listen to ideas across the aisle. In fact, they radicalize and if you disagree with me, then I'm going to fight you on this because I can't give an inch because if I give an inch, I'm giving a part of my identity. That's how closely tied I am to this. And so the people in the city of Portland are like, oh my gosh, what is happening to our city? It's secularism that has come back to roost. And look, I think that's a great case study for what this looks like really all over the world. The cracks of secularism are beginning to display themselves. And I can tell you this, that as the kingdom of God moves on in the background, we see things like this happen all the time throughout human history. If you live long enough, you've seen cycles of fashion come in and out, You've seen cycles of technology come in and out. You've seen cycles of philosophical belief maybe even come in and out. If you live long enough, right? That's how these things happen, right? If they're human initiated, they come in white hot and they promise all kinds of things and then they fizzle out in the end. And the entire time, the kingdom of God continues to move on as Jesus moves his mission through the lives of people, redeeming people for eternity. And the hidden kingdom continues to move on while all of these other things fall apart in front of it. Now, I think what that does is it gives us hope. It gives us hope in a world that may seem like at times it's hopeless. Are people going to listen to the gospel? Do they even care about these kinds of things? I think in large part what we're seeing is although the people in the city of Portland aren't saying, hey, give us the meta-narrative of the Bible, right? They're saying things are broken and we need some other kind of solution. And it's in those opportunities that the hope of Jesus can be spoken. So I want to give you Really what I would call, I guess, this is kind of three handles to mission, but I'm going to call them the three P's of mission. Basically, there are three things. It's very, it's very preacher-like to have three points and to have them all start with the same letter. And uh, I don't typically like to do this because typically you have to kind of force fit these things in, but there's a reason why we do this. I don't know if you realize this, but three things is, is easy to remember. If you get past three things, it becomes much more difficult to remember for people. And if you start them all with the same letter, it makes it even easier to remember these things. And I really want you to remember these things, all right? So the three Ps of mission. And really, these are not things that are, you know, really that in, uh, innovative. They're just coming from what Jesus did. So the first thing is to be present. You know, Jesus was present. According to John chapter 1, John says that Jesus tabernacled, that he was incarnate among us, that he lived and he dwelt among us. And John really liked this because in 1 John, which he also wrote in chapter 1, he said, Jesus was with us. We could touch him. We could see him. We could hear him. He was present with us. And look, let me say this. In a world in which uh, people are lonely and isolated, which is certainly the culture that we're in, which is a part of secularism as well, the ministry of presence is so powerful. In a world where we are so fascinated with social media that promise to bring us all together 
and make us content, and yet in reality it's made us more lonely and less content. The ministry of physical presence is so critically important. You can go into a middle school dance today and you'll see something that's very similar to any middle school dance throughout history, which is that the boys are on one side and the girls are on the other, right? And nobody's kind of dancing. But, but when you go into a middle school dance today, you'll see something maybe that you haven't seen in previous generations, which is that the boys are on their phones texting the girls who are on their phones, and they never ever make it to the dance floor because nobody knows how to talk to each other anymore, right? Much less dance. And so the ministry of presence of being there with somebody is hugely powerful, to be present in someone's life who needs to see Jesus and needs to know Jesus. How are you present as Jesus was present with us? Secondly, proclaim. You know, proclaim doesn't necessarily mean to preach. It almost certainly doesn't mean probably to knock on somebody's door and ask them questions about their death and those kinds of things. But it does mean to speak about the gospel. The word evangelism comes from the Greek word euangelion, which literally means to preach or to proclaim or to actually speak good news. And so we haven't really done evangelism until we've actually spoken about who Jesus is, until we've actually spoken the good news to someone. Now this may be just telling your story. It may be providing hope for someone who's in a hopeless situation. It may look different than, again, just preaching. I love the way Peter, Peter Haas says it this way, the job of a Christian isn't to convict the world of its sin, that job is already taken. John 16, 8 says the Holy Spirit will convict the world of its sin. But it's our response is to love them through their wake-up calls. And so when people are awakened to this, which is even being awoken to this kind of broken worldview, that we are there to love them, and one of the ways we love them is by telling them the truth. One of the ways we love them is by communicating a message of hope, which is found in the gospel. And I think we need to get back to trusting the fact that God's word has power in it to just speak into people's lives and to let it do what it's supposed to do. So we proclaim, and then third, we personify. You know, Jesus' earthly ministry was, of course, marked by his announcement of the kingdom. He said the kingdom, the good news is that the kingdom of God is at hand. And we see in Matthew and Mark right after that, Matthew and Mark are careful to show us that Jesus begins from that point on to engage in his earthly ministry where people are healed and people are delivered from demons. In other words, the kingdom, this is what the kingdom looks like. It puts back together things that are broken. That there is a real effect that the gospel of the kingdom has in our world. And it should be taking root in our lives and it should be happening through our lives so that other people see that there's a difference to this person who actually follows Jesus. That this kingdom is real. It makes a difference in people's lives. And I think in order to represent that, there's a few things that we need to do to personify the gospel. Well, and I'll, I'll just give you some suggestions. I won't say need to do. These are just some suggestions, but here's one. The first one is repent. Repentance is a good thing for a Christian. I know it's a dirty word in some cases for us, but at least we treat it like that. But repentance is a good thing. It's a gift for the Christian. But here's the thing is that the culture that we live in, the culture that we swim in is racked with idols everywhere. False gods that people worship and give their lives to. And we swim in that same culture. We swim in those same waters. So to think that we aren't affected by that is to be blinded, really, to what our hearts really lead us to do. And so I would say that we need to repent because 
What does someone who is greedy, divisive, self-sufficient, sexually immoral, or addicted to media have to say to a world that is greedy, divisive, self-sufficient, mean-spirited, addicted to media, and sexually immoral? There has to be a difference there. What difference does the kingdom make in your life? Secondly, I think one of the things that sociologists and psychologists have identified that is a huge crack in the secular mindset, which is really just endemic everywhere throughout the modern West, is that people are ill-equipped to handle suffering in their lives and to really face the subject of death. In fact, in secularism, you can't even mention the word death anymore because secularism is set up to handle what happens at death. And suffering, suffering there's no explanation for And so as Christians, sometimes it means that we may have to suffer well in the front of other people and to have even contentment in the midst of suffering as we're led by Jesus to display that there is hope beyond the situation that people are facing. Because the one true thing about all of us as human beings is that although we may not have a way to face suffering, all of us will face suffering at some point. And some of us will face it in such a deep way that it really changes us. And that's happening all around us. It's happening to non-Christian friends and co-workers that you know. And so finally this. I think also when we look at the world that's around us, we mentioned, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, we have a culture that's bent on power and dominating others based upon my worldview and the way that I see things. And so I think what we're being called to be in this moment, and when I talk about what it means for us as a generation, I'm not talking about just millennials or Gen Xers or baby boomers. When you talk about a generation, it's like if you are alive right now, this is your generation. We have to really uh, figure out and see what what it is that Jesus is leading us to do in this generation. I think one of the things is that as the church, we need to become, we need to become more humble and more weak and vulnerable so that Jesus can be seen as strong. And that fights against everything that comes at us. In culture, it fights against being an American in some ways. But here's the thing. Paul said this. Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We have to display our weakness so that the grace of Jesus and the glory of Jesus can be seen as strong. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, for when I am weak, I'm displayed in need of the grace of Jesus. And as the grace and glory of Jesus is displayed through my life, it impacts a world that is starving for it. The reason why people are so intent on clinging to power is because they don't know where else to turn. And look, we have to remember that the king who called us said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not based in a human government. It's not based in a political system. It's not based in one party or the other. It's not based on the left or the right. It is based on a kingdom, which is wholly different. And his kingdom is not of this world. I want to show you what this looks like as far as weakness being displayed and an opportunity for someone who has gone through suffering and calamity to show what the power of God looks like, what the grace of Jesus looks like through his life. 
About a month ago, you may have heard this story, but a woman by the name of Amber Geiger, who was uh, a police officer coming off of her, a long shift, came home to her apartment complex and ended up on the wrong floor and walked into an apartment that she assumed was hers, but was really her neighbor's on the floor below her. And she saw this man on the couch that she assumed was on her couch in her apartment and was an intruder, and so she pulled out her weapon and shot him dead on the couch. She was uh, found guilty a couple weeks ago, and this past week, I think it was, was her sentencing hearing. Now, if you know what a sentencing hearing is or you've ever seen a sentencing hearing, for the most part, everybody who speaks, speaks on behalf of the victim, and they're usually family members or friends, and their, their, their primary goal typically is to see the judge give the, uh, the, the, the guilty party the worst possible sentence or the most possible years in prison in this case that is possible. And so they're working to usually to try to convince the judge that this person needs to go away for, I think, 99 years. It was like between 5 and 99 years that she could be sentenced to. So like on the upper scale is usually what happens, right? And so instead, I want you to see what happens and what he says here and how he uses this moment to display weakness so that the glory and the strength of Jesus can be seen. In case you missed it, that is uh, Brant Jean. He was a brother of Botham Jean who was shot and killed. And um, to see that is a wonderful representation, I believe, of what it looks like for a young, young man who is obviously wrecked with, grie wrecked with grief. And, you know, he can barely get out the words that he wants to say. You can tell how uncomfortable it is and how emotional he is about the loss of his brother, whom he loved, obviously, so much. And he used it as an opportunity to be vulnerable and to forgive and to glorify Jesus in the midst of it. Um, last I checked, this video has been viewed like 10 million times. It's gone viral this past week. And so even in doing that, think about how many people have been exposed to the message of Jesus through this, to the glory of Jesus, that would never, otherwise maybe not even know him. Worldwide, actually. Maybe somebody in the Middle East or somebody in Africa watching that video and saying, who is Christ? Because the one thing that strikes you as you watch this video, at least for me, is how is it that this, this, this guy could do this? This is so unexpected. And he points to Jesus the entire way. Without saying it, he says, Jesus is the only way I can do something like this. In the end, showing that although he is weak, he is strong. And Jesus is made evident. One of the things that struck me is how if you caught it real quick, the judge even cried, was crying, was in tears. I mean, which is remarkable for a judge in that kind of a situation. But look, that's how powerful this can be. And you may not face a situation in your life. I really hope you don't have to face a situation that is as, 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 as heart-wrenching as what Brant faced there. But in small ways, in big ways, there are opportunities all around us every day in our lives to show that while I'm, in, I, while I'm weak, I can be a peacemaker, I can be gracious, and I can show that my king is truly strong. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come across this commission, this invitation again from you, to join you in your mission, Lord, I pray that we would see it with new eyes this morning. 
that as we, as we look at how the disciples responded, we uh, can't help but see ourselves in that same position, staring at the sky, knowing that eternity hangs in the balance and knowing at the same time that far too many times we have just stared at the sky and forgotten this glorious, wonderful invitation that you have invited us to be a part of. Lord, may we stand in awe, may our hearts stand in awe of the fact that the King of the universe has invited us to do the most important thing imaginable. And Spirit, may you give us the faith and the courage to walk that and to see it. Lord, I pray this morning that we would be recognizing all throughout this week the ways that you are on mission around us. And may every heart in this room this morning constantly be in prayer this week about, Lord Jesus, where are you at? Where are you on mission around me in the places that I already am? Because, Jesus, you were there. You're working on a friend's heart who doesn't know you, and yet is struggling in their marriage. You're working through a situation of unimaginable hopelessness or suffering in someone's life. And you want them to know hope. So Lord Jesus, may we be present with you in your mission as you call us forward. So that those who don't know you may know you and those who know you may know you even more. May trust in you more completely. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. way to finish this morning. I want to say one last thing to you as you leave this morning. If you weren't here and you didn't have a chance to grab one of our compass keychains as you leave with a carabiner on it, we want to invite you to grab one of those as part of this series. It's a reminder for us. It's more than just a trinket or a novelty, although it kind of is. I want you to, but, but, but it, it's designed for this reason, to remind you through this series to focus on what is true north, what is truly important. And this week, what I'd like you to do as we're on, on, on mission understanding that true calling is that as you have this, every time you grab it, put it on your keychain, pray that the Lord Jesus would show you where he is on mission in your world around you. All right? Grace and peace to you. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.